We're going to be in Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 20, verse 1 uh, this morning. Weren't baptisms awesome? Praise the Lord. God is good. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but you, you tend to sit in the same sections, right? Which is a really good thing because as we shake hands every week is get to know those that are around you. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily a fun thing to, to come into church and not know anybody. Uh, and so uh, look around and go, how can I get to know the people uh, in my section? And then the cafe is open uh, before and after a service. They've got some good uh, breakfast burritos. So, you know, you can come early in fellowship, stay late in fellowship take up some of the 11 o'clock parking by having breakfast in between, you know. Uh, but just enjoy one another before and after service uh, as well. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20, verse 1 this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that there's none like you, that you are the pure, spotless lamb, that your blood cleanses us uh, from sin. We want to see you. We want to know you. Lord, would you deepen our understanding of you this morning? Holy Spirit, we invite you to lead us and guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The disciple Peter, in his first letter, wrote this about Jesus, and specifically the blood of Jesus, saying, Knowing that you're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your Father, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You're not redeemed with gold or silver. You are redeemed with the precious blood of the lamb. Jesus is without spot. This takes us back to the Old Testament, where we have this rich history of lambs being slain to cover sin. And it couldn't just be any lamb. It had to be your best lamb without blemish. And the lambs had to be inspected to make sure that you were not offering up a lame or defected lamb. And this was pointing to Jesus, that he is perfect, that he is the pure and spotless lamb. We're in the last week of the life of Jesus. He's at the Temple Mount being confronted by the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders. They don't realize it, but they're inspecting Jesus. And Jesus shines as the pure spotless lamb. We get to behold his perfection. We get to behold his beauty and see indeed that he is that pure spotless lamb. A lot of times we struggle with forgiveness. We know it here, but it's hard for us to, to live in that reality in our hearts. And forgiveness is everything to do with the value of the sacrifice. The reason that we're forgiven is because the blood of Jesus is sufficient that the blood of Jesus is enough to forgive and remove our sins. So Christ is inspected and he's found to be the pure spotless lamb. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. He's coming into Jerusalem every day leading up to his arrest and his trial. He's in the temple and he's preaching the gospel. This stands out to me that we have Christ being consistent throughout his three years of public ministry with the message of the gospel. Now it's the last week of his life and he's still teaching the message of the gospel because that's God's message. That's the most important message. You might be asking, what's the gospel? First Corinthians 15 tells us the gospel is this, 
that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. It's the good news that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. If this was the message of Christ all the way through, don't you think that this is our message as well? The gospel is the beginning point for believers, but it's also the ending point. And it's every point in between and is going to be what echoes throughout all of eternity. So we center in on the gospel. We don't forget Jesus Christ and him crucified. When we have the opportunity to share with others, what do we share with them? We share the gospel. We share the good news that there's a savior that died for our sins. The chief priests, the scribes, they're coming to confront Jesus, but we're gonna find that they're actually the ones that are confronted. Christ is going to do the confrontation. In verse two, and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? Coming to Jesus saying, you gotta tell us by whose authority that you're doing these things. Trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus says, the father has given me the authority to do this. Claiming his relationship with the father, declaring his deity, they would think, well, we've got you. You're declaring yourself as God. You're declaring God as your father, declaring yourself as the son of God. We're going to arrest you for blasphemy. Jesus knows exactly what they're doing, and he responds with a question. But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it was from. Brilliant. Jesus answers a question with a question. Say, all right, guys, why don't you tell me John the Baptist? Did he have authority from God or from men? And they get in this huddle and they start to reason within themselves. And they say, well, if we declare from God, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe John the Baptist? What was the message of John the Baptist? To point to Jesus Christ. He was the forerunner of Christ. He must increase that I must decrease, John said. But if they say that John the Baptist was from men, the people are going to get upset. And the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they were all about trying to please people. They were all about the praise of men. So they didn't want to offend the masses. They didn't want to go against the people. Christ shines as the pure spotless lamb. He shines as God. There's no one that can trump him. Even those that are trying to, to kill him cannot bring anything against him. If you have someone coming against you, Follow the model of Jesus and try answering that question with a question. You know what I'm saying? It'd be easy to get defensive and start to throw up that smoke screen and put up those protection mechanisms, but to stand back and to be able to respond uh, with a question. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In verse 9, then he began to tell the people this parable. Jesus has a way of cutting deep with stories, known as parables. Stories stay with us, and Jesus is the master storyteller. 
Jesus is going to confront the chief priests and the scribes through this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to the vine dresser, and went into a far country for a long time. Jesus very strategically chooses a vineyard. Israel is filled with vineyards. Historically, throughout their past, currently they have a lot of vineyards. The climate is very conducive towards it. But throughout the Old Testament, God likened the children of Israel to his vineyard. In Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, lots of references. These men are familiar with the scriptures. They know that Israel is God's vineyard. So this vineyard has been planted. Then it's been given to the care of a vine dresser, a steward. It's not his vineyard, but he's to care for it and then release the profits to the owner of the vineyard. Turn with me in your Bible, if you've got your Bible this morning, to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5 speaks to Israel being the vineyard of God. You've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Or you might use your Bible app. You've probably already beat us on your Bible app. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So God has a vineyard. This is the work that God has put into his vineyard. He dug it up. He cleared it out, its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also has made a wine press in it. So he expected to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Cleared the land, planted the vines, even put in a wine press, this stone to be able to crush uh, the grapes. We're preparing a vegetable garden this year. We've done it in the past, and it's been a few years, so there's a bit of extra work. And man, if we don't get vegetables, I'm going to be a little bitter. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we've been working hard. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? God's saying to Israel, I've poured everything into you. Is there anything more that I could have done to cause you to love me, to walk with me? In verse 5, and now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, its protection, and it shall be burned And break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It will be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I also commanded the clouds that they rain no more on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel. The vineyard is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Jerusalem was taken captive in 586 by the Babylonians because they turned away from God, because they didn't bear fruit, went into idolatry. So for those that are hearing this on the Temple Mount, 
When Jesus begins to speak of a vineyard, they have all of these references to the Old Testament and they know it's talking about them. Let's jump back to Luke 20 and look at verse 10. Now at a vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dresser that they may give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the vine dresser beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Weird reception, right? You're the steward. It doesn't belong to you. Your job is to take care of the vineyard. The master sends a servant. Hey, send some of the prophets. Send some of the grapes. Instead of doing that, the servant gets beat. If the vineyard is Israel, who's the servant? The servant is the prophets. It's Jeremiah. It's Isaiah. It's Ezekiel. It's Hosea. These prophets that God sent and Israel rejected the prophets. In verse 11, and again, he sent another servant. And they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. This rejection of the prophets and even persecution of the prophets. Rejected the second and third servant. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. Clearly speaking of Jesus. The father's saying, they've rejected my servants. They've rejected my servants. In my love for them, I'm going to send my beloved son. And there's that emphasis. The father wants us to know how much he loves his son. So we would understand what a tremendous gift it is for Jesus to die on the cross for us. The father speaks two times in the gospels audible for heaven where those around could hear his voice. It's going to be fun to hear God's voice, to know what God's voice sounds like. But what did the father say? Both times, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, pay attention to him. I'm going to send my son. Maybe they will listen to my son. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. The vine dresser, the steward, they understand this is the son. This is the owner's son. But instead of respecting the son, they choose to kill the son so that they can have the inheritance. The vine dressers, being the nation of Israel, specifically being the leaders of the temple, was to be God's house. The priests were to serve the Lord. But instead of serving the Lord, what do they do? They reject God's message and they reject God's son. I think deep down, the chief priests knew that Jesus was God. They knew that he was God's son. They knew that he was the fulfillment of what was taking place in the Old Testament scriptures. But they chose to kill God's son. What, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the son. And you're attempting to kill me. You're plotting to kill me. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus is cast out of Jerusalem. He's cast out of the temple. He is crucified. So what's the owner of the vineyard going to do with the vine dressers? What is the father going to do to the chief priests? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. This judgment coming upon the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and God raising up Peter and the disciples to lead his people with the birth of, of the church. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. <laughs> 
What a lame answer. This is a lame answer. You with me? Talk about confrontation from Jesus. And they're like, no way, certainly not. This couldn't be. Nobody would, would act like that. And they're unwilling to see their own sin. So isn't this amazing of Christ? Here comes the most powerful men in the nation of Israel trying to confront Jesus, bringing these challenging questions, but Christ is the one who's confronting them. And that's where maybe you might find yourself this morning. You're like, I don't really like Jesus. I'm confronting Jesus. Jesus, how could you do this? And how could you allow that? How could you send people to hell? If, if you're good, why do you allow these trials in your life? And humbly, I suggest to you that you feel very smart. You feel very justified in these questions before the Lord. But I encourage you this morning that you're the one that's actually being confronted. That Jesus is the one that actually has questions for you. And Jesus is the one that has questions for me. Job is an interesting story as he wrestled with the trials and difficulties in his life. And he's asking God these really difficult questions. But then the end of the book of Job is God has questions for Job. And hey, Job, where were you at the foundations of the world? I'm the one that causes deer to have their, not babies, whatever you call, fawns. Is it fawns? We'll go with that this morning. <laughs> I'm making all of this work throughout creation. And, and Job, where were you? And I think it's fair to bring your honest questions to the Lord. He would want you to, and he'll hear them in his grace. But you also have to be, prepare yourselves for the questions that Christ would bring to you. Are you up for that? Are you up for Christ to come into our lives and say, okay, Eric, you need to listen to this, and you need to listen to this, and, and you need to listen to this. In verse 17, then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is taking them to Psalms 118. And write this down because this is a beautiful fulfillment of prophecy. In this psalm, you have it written that there's a stone which the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. I want to read it to you out of Psalms 118. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the Lord's doing. You've got this analogy of some builders building the cornerstone, which is the most important stone of the whole entire building. Everything goes off of the cornerstone. And you can hear this discussion happening between four or five construction workers. You got it wrong. The cornerstone is wrong. The dimensions are wrong. Cast it away. Let's remake the stone. A few days go by. No, you got it right. Go get that rejected cornerstone. It was exactly right. The dimensions were right. And it becomes the most important stone in the building. And Jesus is rejected. He's rejected by Israel. He's rejected by the chief priests. He's rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees. But it was the Lord's doing. This is God's plan of salvation for us to be redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. And Psalms 118 says it's marvelous in our eyes. Isn't it marvelous in our eyes that Jesus would be rejected 
for our forgiveness and our salvation. But did you also notice in Psalms 118 that it says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And yes, every day is a gift from God, but Psalms 118 is talking about the day of salvation. God made the day of salvation, so let's rejoice and be glad in it. Because Jesus has died for us, there's a reason to rejoice every single day. Verse 18, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Whoever falls on that stone, the stone is Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. You will be broken in a beautiful way, in a life-giving way. There's a brokenness that comes into our lives when we fall on Jesus. This morning, if you choose to trust Christ as your Savior, to turn from sin, to believe that Jesus died for you and rose again, there is a breaking that happens. The Bible talks about repentance. Jesus taught repentance. The disciples, John the Baptist, I understand that I'm a sinner and I'm turning away from my sin, turning to Jesus. Jesus, save me and be the Lord of my life. And God's gracious to forgive us and start to rebuild our lives in a way that reflects his restoration. And restoration is more beautiful than perfection because it's got the hand of the master. It's got the hand of Jesus in our life of restoration. I'm a fan of restoration, whether it's old houses or old cars, because somebody put effort into that, that restoration And our lives are a testimony of Jesus' love for us. You, You fall on Jesus and you will be broken. Hopefully we don't ever lose that as believers. As believers this morning, we fall on Jesus afresh and we allow our lives to be broken in his goodness. My my heart needs to be broken afresh in Jesus to allow him to continue to build me. My heart can get hard, it can drift from the Lord. But there's another response, and it's the response of the chief priests. Is if you don't fall on Jesus, he's going to fall on you. And if Jesus falls on you because you've rejected him, he's going to grind you down. And he's going to grind you to powder. And there is an eternal consequence of rejecting Christ over the course of your life. Jesus described it as hell. It's outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. God doesn't want any to perish. She doesn't want to send any to hell. We have four kids and they're older now, but when they were young and and little, my my wife Amber would let them know this phrase because all of our kids as a family were adrenaline junkies. We like to, to play hard. So whether it's bikes or skateboards or some type of adventure, so she would let the kids know, just want to remind you the concrete always wins. So wear a helmet because the concrete always wins. And that has played true in our family. The concrete wins. If, if you don't believe my wife on this, just, just go out and try it for yourself. The, the concrete will win. And I got to tell you this morning, Jesus is going to win. He's going to win. You can either fall on him, trust the gospel, receive his grace and forgiveness, or he'll fall on you. And you don't want Jesus to fall on you in that context. You want to receive his grace and forgiveness. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the the opportunity. In verse 19, and the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay their hands on him, 
but they feared the people for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They're angry. They have been pricked by the truth and instead of responding in repentance, they respond in absolute anger and they wanna take Jesus and in that moment arrest him, turn him over to the Romans for crucifixion, but they couldn't because they feared the people. Once again, they're, they're living for the praise of people because they knew that he'd spoken the parable against them. They knew that they're the vine dressers in this story. And Christ is confronting them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they may seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Rome is in charge of the land. They're under the tyranny of Rome. The Jews don't have the freedom for capital punishment. It would have to be Pilate, the Roman governor, that would order the execution, the crucifixion of Jesus. So they have those that pretend to be righteous. Isn't that interesting? They're not actually righteous. They're just pretending to be righteous to catch Jesus in his words, to try to trap him and build this case of false accusation against Christ. Then they asked him saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is not a genuine question and it's not a genuine compliment. They are full of it right here. Coming up to Jesus, oh, you're such a good teacher. You teach rightly. You don't show favoritism. You show us the truth of God. Then here's the trap. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do we pay taxes to Rome or not? If Jesus says, nope, don't pay taxes to Rome, he's in trouble with Rome. He's in trouble with the Roman governor, Pilate. If he says, yeah, you've got to pay taxes, then he's in trouble with the people. And you can see them sitting back going, oh, we got him on this one. We got him on this one. Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? You can't outsmart Jesus. Anybody a chess player? All two of you, all three of you? So I kid you not, I asked last night in the Saturday night service, there wasn't one person that would raise their hand as a chess player. Um, not one, right? So I really have never played chess. My brother was a chess player. I think I played twice and I didn't have the patience for it. It's too much mental work, you know what I'm saying? But I've watched people play chess. And it's interesting. It's this mental game that's happening that's going back and forth. And who can art outsmart who? And they think that they can outsmart Jesus. But Jesus sees what they're up to. And I got to tell you, we can't outsmart the Lord. You might think you can pull the wool over his eyes. You, you might think that you can come at God with some clever argument. But he knows our hearts. He knows what we're up to. He sees through all of that. Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. Throw me a coin. Whose image is on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's, the leader of the Roman Empire. Answers their question and said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. What a beautiful answer to this question of whether we pay taxes or not. 
Whose image is on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, you owe these taxes to Rome. As a believer, as a child of God, if you think there's a, a biblical allowance for not paying taxes, I can't find it. This line of thinking of going, well, the government uses the taxes for some really wicked things, and so we shouldn't pay taxes as believers. Do you think Caesar was using tax money for godly things? An absolute corrupt government filled with all kinds of evil, and God says, hey, you've got to pay unto Caesar. Caesar's accountable to the Lord. The state of Colorado is accountable to the Lord. Governor Polis is going to have to stand before the Lord. Joe Biden's going to have to stand before the Lord. I'm going to have to stand before the Lord. You're going to have to stand before the Lord. So we've got to pay our taxes. Bad news, I know. But there's better news. Jesus goes deeper and he says, you know, whose image are you? You're created in God's image. So this coin has been stamped with the image of Caesar, but each of us have been stamped with the image of God. This takes us to the first few chapters of Genesis. God is creating, and he's speaking things into existence. He creates Adam, he creates Eve, and he makes a statement about Adam and Eve, and he says that he's created them in his image. Of his creation, only Adam and Eve bear the image of God. You are special in God's creation and you won't hear that out there in the world, but it's what the Bible teaches. You are more valuable than the animal kingdom. You are more valuable than the trees. Not that we don't value and appreciate those. We're stewards over that as God's creation. But there's something special about Adam and Eve. There's something special about you. And you bear the very imprint of God. You bear the image of God. We're made in a unique, God-designed way where we're triune. We're body, soul, and spirit. Our spirit will last for eternity in heaven or hell. That is different than animals. Animals don't have a spirit that lasts for all of eternity, but you do. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but yet one. You have three aspects to your person, but yet one. You're made in the image of God. So this means that your life has value by God. God has placed value on your life because you're created in his image. There's two foundational things to understand that your life has value. First, that you're made in God's image. And the second is that Jesus died for you. So if you're wrestling with whether your life really matters or not, it absolutely does because God created you in his image. There's never been anybody like you in the past, present, or in the future. You're uniquely you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Amazing. You're valued because the blood of Jesus died for your sins and my sins. It's true for us personally, and it's also true for everyone around us. Everyone is created in God's image. That means their life has value. God has ascribed value to their life. Jesus died for them. 
Whether they've accepted it or rejected it, there's the truth that Jesus has died for them. So we see our lives. We talk about a biblical worldview. I've got these glasses. I'm seeing the world through these glasses. We want to see the world through the lens of the truth of Scripture to see ourself and others through this reality that their life matters because God created them and Jesus died for them. So how does this play out in real life issues? These are biblical issues, not political issues. There's a lot of political issues, I understand that, but these are biblical issues. God laid these out in his word long before government was ever come into existence. Life matters to the Lord. Why does life matter to the Lord? Because he's the creator of life and we're made in his image. So, life matters in the womb. Life begins at conception. And life is to be valued inside of the womb. That's why as the people of God, we support the pro-life movement. That we say, I am for these babies in the womb because God is for life. It's also why as believers that assisted medical suicide is not okay. It's legal in Colorado. We have a lot of laws in Colorado that are legal, but they're not biblical. I hope you understand that. So the law in Colorado is, if you're terminally ill with an illness, you can go to a doctor here in Colorado, and they can prescribe a prescription for you to have assisted suicide. Your, your life's not yet over. You're not at that point where you're naturally going to pass away, but you're terminally ill. So the doctor then writes you a prescription. You fill it at a pharmacy, Walgreens, Costco. Pick up that prescription and end your life. At home, take the pill, it's done. That is not okay. Why? Because... God is the author of life. We're made in his image. So we don't get to take life in the womb and we don't get to take life in the end of life as well. We hold to natural death. Saying, Lord, my life belongs to you. When you decide for me to go home to be with the Lord, I'm going to trust in that. You see how this plays out in so many areas? Why is murder wrong? Why is it wrong to go kill someone? You think that that would be understood. Well, because we're made in God's image. This is someone who's created in God's image and I have just innocently taken their life. This touches on suicide as well, doesn't it? Touches on suicide. Maybe you're wrestling with, I'm gonna take my own life. You don't get to do that because your life doesn't belong to you. You're not the owner of your life. God created you. You're made in his image. Jesus died for you. And yes, heaven is going to be awesome, but God also has a purpose for this life. As believers, we don't take our life. We don't kill ourselves so that we can go to heaven sooner. We don't want to have that be the last thing of this life as God, I, I took my life. And I know that there's some this morning where you're wrestling with suicide and please hear that you're made in God's image and that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Don't feel shamed. Don't feel condemned. We want to come alongside of you. We want to pray with you. We want to walk with you. We want to love you. And your life is worth fighting for. Maybe you've had an abortion, participated in abortion, and you're feeling this weight of condemnation. There's forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. 
Jesus has died for our sin and cleansed us for our sins and know that you are forgiven in Christ. This amazing gift of life, you're made in the image of God. Let's go a little bit deeper. And you're like, no, please don't go any deeper. When God created Adam and Eve, he said something just just mind-blowing. He called Adam a male. He said, Adam, you're male. Eve, you're, you're female. They weren't the same. God created them differently, male and female. But he said something interesting. He said, you're created in God's image, male and female. You, you wouldn't think that God would have to define that. It's obvious that Adam is male, Eve is, is female. But God in his wisdom calls Adam male. And in his wisdom calls Eve female and says, you're made in the image of God. As the people of God, we're committed to biblical truth, not cultural relevancy. It's biblical truth that changes culture. So this morning in biblical truth, I get to share with you, men, you're created as a male in the image of God. So as you walk in your biological gender, you're glorifying God in his image. Ladies, you were created a biological female. And as you walk in that gender that God gave to you, you are walking in the image of God. Why is Satan trying to destroy gender in our culture? It's very specific, and it's an attack from the enemy, because if gender just goes away, and there's no longer male and female, which, by the way, is impossible. You can try to do that, but you are biologically male, biologically female. But to confuse this to where we don't see male, we don't see female anymore, he's eliminated a pure expression of the image of God. When we argue with our gender, who ultimately are you arguing with? Are you arguing with your parents? No, you're not. Your parents didn't choose your gender. God chose your gender. God created you in your mother's womb, made you male, made you female. I'm not trying to come across this in any way of a condemning way. And I understand there are real struggles with gender. And if you find yourself in that place, don't hear condemnation, but here you've got a God who loves you, who died on the cross for you, that has a wonderful plan for your life, and you are going to experience the abundant life as you walk in the gender that God has created for you. So this is not meant in condemnation. This is not meant in anyone is greater than anyone else, but this is saying, We have to know God's truth because as we know in God's truth, God's truth sets us free. I think it's time for us to say, let's try doing things God's way in sexuality and gender because it's not working. And the enemy is is ripping people off. So there's so much to this. We're going to go even deeper on Wednesday night. So come back on Wednesday night. We're going to do an in-depth study of what it looks like to be made in the image of God. I can't think of anything that's more relevant for right now where we're living to understand we're in God's image. But before we move on, what's the application of being made in God's image? If Caesar gets taxes, what does God get? He gets everything. 
If I'm made in the image of God, then I'm surrendering my whole entire life to him. Verse 26, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. These are the ones that are hate him. These are the ones that are trying to crucify him. They can't catch Jesus in his words, and they're marveled at his answer. Jesus is inspected by the chief priest and proven and shown clearly and shines brightly as the pure spotless lamb that died for our sins. Two applications this morning. The first is, let's rejoice in the greatness of Jesus. Let's rejoice that he is the precious, pure, spotless lamb that died for our sins for us to be able to have forgiveness. If you don't know Christ as your savior, this morning, would you trust Jesus? Would you fall upon Jesus, his goodness, turn from sin? We're gonna sing a last worship song and right during the song, would you come and receive Christ as your savior? Would you respond to Jesus calling you? Today is the day of salvation. Those watching online, you can respond in the chats, the comments. Don't wait. Fall upon Jesus. Receive him as your Savior. The second application, you're created in God's image. Let's live in that reality and honor God with our lives. If you're in a place where you're struggling with suicide, man, please come and receive prayer. I have not experienced anything more painful as a pastor than doing funerals for suicide. It never, never, never makes life better for anyone around you. It causes so much hurt to family and friends. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. And don't think just because you're a believer that you're not gonna have that struggle. Let's pull off the mask, pull off the facade and say, I'm wrestling with thoughts of suicide. Let's fight together. Let's, let's fight for life. I guarantee, absolute guarantee, that you are in relationship with someone that is contemplating suicide. Our city has the worst numbers of suicide in the whole entire country. We're always in the top 10. Guess what? We've got to press in and fight for life, right? In any of these ways... any of these ways where the image of God touches a core and you're saying, man, I had an abortion at a point in my life. I participated in an abortion. I I attempted to take my own life. I I took someone else's life. Come, receive healing. Come, receive forgiveness. Know that God is, is here for you because he is that pure and spotless lamb. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Jesus, you are perfect. You are the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And Holy Spirit, would you help us to know the forgiveness of sin? For those that don't know you, may today, right now, be the moment where they fall upon Jesus. Maybe they're that skeptic, that hard heart, or they're interested in you. May you draw them to yourself. And would you teach us what this means to be made in your image, to Respond to your goodness with our whole entire life. We know the enemy is attacking us in this area of life. Lord, I pray for those wrestling with thoughts of suicide. Would you minister to them, give them hope, protect them. Lord, I pray for those that at a time in their life had an abortion and this is just such a difficult service. 
Lord, would you confirm your, your love to them? Would you come to them in a way that, that only you can? And Lord, all of us have fallen short. Lord, all of us have, have failed to see this reality that life matters in our own life and in the life of others. And so would you help us through the power of your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. As, as we worship, please come. If you, you need to respond, we'd love to pray with you to receive Christ and for the Lord to provide comfort in your life. Thanks so much for coming. Pray that you're blessed and let's worship together.